is Phoebe. Welcome to Feminine Chaos. Yes, welcome. And uh, Phoebe, what are we talking about today? Uh, je ne sais pas. Je ne, je ne veux pas dire en anglais. <laughs> oh, fuck. You're... Oh. <laughs> It it took me a minute, but I've just realized you're doing a related bit. You're just being deeply insensitive or perhaps intentionally insensitive, intentionally insensitive. You're actually provoking deservedly all of those entitled people, um, specifically white people. Or Anglo can in Canada, it would almost make sense what I just did. Actually, in a Canadian context, that would make sense to speak French and refuse to um, out of principle to give the English. That's true. Actually, you know, this is what I like about going to Canada is um, because I do speak French. Um, I don't speak it anywhere near as well as I used to. And if you want to practice your French and you go to France, they pretend not to understand you, even if you've said something that's clearly intelligible and not even that complicated. The, you know, they switch to English automatically. And if you try to do French, they're like, I, I don't. Uh, mm-hmm. What are you saying? Um <laughs> True, true. That's my snarky French impression. But um, but in Canada, you know, they appreciate that you try and they will continue to speak French with you, even if you're doing it pretty badly for as long as you care to persist. And I like that. That's true. Uh, What you say is exactly, exactly right. I remember um, it was only so my French language skills never really went where they were meant to go. Like I got very good at reading in French and writing in French was all right, but the speaking somehow, like I always would sound American, but then I got to some point at which it flipped. And then when I was in France in grad school, I was in a shoe store and they thought I was actually French. And I know that because I was getting all the like xenophobia about Italians who apparently (laughs) have like extremely big feet, (laughs) according to this woman selling the shoes um but that i that like we don't have such big feet as these italians or something and i was like what <laughs> like so if you learn enough like with the accent in french they but now i'm sure i would get the full-on we don't understand you because i have not been using french much um day to day but yeah so it is insensitive is it so which is rude to translate in a novel or to uh not do so Gosh, I mean, it just depends on what you're trying to achieve. Or should not, nothing should be in translation, right? Get rid of translators, just everything in its original language. And if you can't read it, too bad for you. Educate yourself. Um, (laughs) We're talking about this. Well, this is sort of an intro sort of tweet as intro, um, which is that Isabella Wang uh, from a now locked, or at least when I last checked, locked account tweeted that uh, readers and in particular white readers are not owed translations and this was a very viral tweet yeah i actually i just found a screenshot of it so i can actually read it aloud so her tweet says readers especially white readers are not entitled to footnotes slash explanations slash direct translations of non-english words that a bipoc author chooses to use in their books with intentions of not translating right so there's a lot there, and there's also not a lot there at the same time. And Isabella Wang, I believe, is a novelist herself. Is that right? I thought that she was actually a poet. Oh, a poet. Oh, a poet. Okay. Okay. Well, either way, she's got some kind of literary widget. Yeah. And this, I mean, this certainly provoked an enormous amount of conversation within especially the, well, not just the, you know, sort of 
angry at stuff on Twitter community, but also within the writing community of which I am a part and so are you. So this is, you know, why we're talking about it. I actually only identify as a member of the angry on Twitter community. Long form angry on Twitter. Do you think that people who are not part of that community are entitled to translations of your (laughs) subtweets? Or is that a form of entitlement that should not be indulged? The latter, definitely. Um, Yeah, so this was, it did cause a stir because I think these are, like, there are interesting questions here. And there's also the kind of, how to put this, the antagonistic style in tweeting, you know, the buckle down, I'm going to lecture you style in tweeting. But it's also like, there is, I think, there are two levels of interest here. One, or maybe even more than two. But for starters, there's the literary question of which is, like if you have to pick which is better, um, and I don't think there has to be one answer to that, um, whether a few words in a language other than what the book is written in should be um, translated or explained or not, and when you do what. Um, that's interesting. Also the sort of lecturing people on Twitter thing. But then I guess the other level is that really struck me was just this conflation, I thought, sort of implicit conflation of white with native English speaker and non-white with not native English speaker that quite simply does not work in the world. I mean, like there are plenty of white people on this planet who are not native English speakers. I know it's, I'm revealing something new here, but also there are plenty of people who are not white, who are native English speakers. Thus, like it, it wasn't explicitly category conflating because it could be just about the very specific circumstance in which whatever. But I'm wondering, like, if somebody's white and they're writing in English, but they're of an immigrant background and they write in the language of their family, do the stakes change completely? Like, is it all racialized via also? I'm not sure is. Isabella Wang Canadian or American? I'm okay, not. this was this was something else. I don't know what uh, I know that she is an immigrant in whatever country she's living in, which is presumably in North America. Um, and this was very interesting: is that she, in further down the thread, she started talking about how she includes the, these words, Mandarin words, in her writing, despite the fact that she's actually she hasn't retained much, if any, ability to speak Mandarin. Like she's not fluent in it at this point. Um, she feels very disconnected from her, her her mother tongue and from her original culture as a member of the diaspora. So when you say like, is this is this specific to, you know, a category of people? What I think it's really specific to is Isabella Wang and her particular anxieties about her place in the world. So I tried to figure out where she's from, like, not where she's from, like where is she really from style microaggression, but like whether she lives in the US or Canada. And I have her bio, I am an immigrant writer and poet residing on the unceded and unsurrendered territories of the Musqueam, Squamish and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. So- And and is that in the US or Canada? For all I know, it could be in both. I am not sure. So North America though, I'm, I'm gonna say North America. The land acknowledgement without any translation. Interesting, right? So she's consistent. She is. Yes. Because like, I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, okay, I can Google that and find out, which I'll do now. I'm going to do it. It's not her job to educate me. I'm going to educate myself on where this is. Um, Vancouver, which makes sense because I think she has BC in her handle. So it's uh, British Columbia. This is my ignorance of anything that happens west of me. 
I have no idea. Oh man, that's a, a like a very niche form of entitlement. It's not just like white <laughs> North American privilege, no, but it's, no. it's specific Ontario province privilege. Ontario and East, I have some idea what's happening. Anything West of me, um, or is it an absence of privilege because it's not having the funds for the, apparently it's very lovely on the West Coast in Canada and I have not seen it. Oh my so, gosh. Well, hmm. I just, I'm going to just one up you here by, by claiming that I have no knowledge of anything that happens outside the bounds of the five block radius immediately surrounding my home. You win. okay so this this tweet though i mean like there was a lot going on but let's start talk about the literary aspect of it so kat what do you think do you think that she's right Okay, I am actually fascinated by this. Okay, so there is this entire debate within sort of the broader writing community, um, people who write books that include bits and pieces of a language that is not English when the book is otherwise written in English. And there's this whole debate about should you even italicize those words? Is that a form of like otherizing or exoticizing the other language? Is it a form of racism? Which I've always thought was very silly, but this seems to escalate it even beyond that to the idea that not only should you not be marking the words that appear in another language from the the language the book is mainly written in, but that you should be refusing to translate or contextualize them. Um, as a fiction writer, I think this is a very interesting approach because, you know, to me, the point of writing is to create a world that you invite people into and you try to to help them understand it. You know, you're trying to you're trying to draw them in, you're trying to immerse them in in whatever you've made. And this is the opposite of that. This is like a pushing out. This is, you know, in the text you're going to encounter this thing and you're going to feel quite explicitly as uh, you know, it's what she intends, you're going to feel that it is not for you. And what are you supposed to do then? Are you supposed to close the book? Are you supposed to realize that you're trespassing? I I mean, I think that is like it is not a way that I would ever write a book. Um, and if you want people to like buy your books and read your books, if you want to make a living doing this, it's not really a thing that you should do. But then it it strikes me that Isabella Wang in doing this is approaching writing with a very different purpose than the average, say, writer of commercial fiction is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So yes, um, all of that, uh, I have... I have to yes and all of it, um, basically. <laughs> so in terms of, to just to start with the question of how she's selling books herself, I almost wonder if it is just a different publishing strategy. It's be sort of woke controversial on Twitter and become sort of a personality. And that would be a very fast track to having your book in the window of any bookstore in my or numerous other uh, Toronto neighborhoods. I could see that working. I don't know whether that is what gets a poetry audience. Maybe it could be one way, one route to that. I think also my understanding of poetry as a sort of field is that this is not how very many people are really making a living. Like I I know some poets and I don't know of anybody who's like making their living primarily from poetry. So I think getting your name out there kind of might be more the point in this case. I'm not sure. So she's not, it it seems that if she's what, what she's writing is poetry and not fiction, her opinions about fiction might not be all that relevant to like selling commercial fiction, you know what I mean? Or any sort of fiction, you know, that's one thing. Um, Then there's the question of, 
yeah, so my I should say my own understanding of this as a nonfiction writer is that when I've like the edits I've gotten, like when I wrote a book, were like you can't just name somebody. You have to say that who they are in the world or what type of writer or, or, you know, professor, whoever they are, you have to say it, you know, spell out who this is, spell out what this publication is. You know, the, like the reader doesn't know what you're talking about. The reader doesn't know what you're talking about. And I've internalized that now, you know, like I don't even, I don't really get that as an edit anymore. Cause I just generally, if it's like, I try to think of who's the audience, will the audience know what I'm talking about? I don't put in information that's going to be like, redundant to that audience but you know like this is just something that I wouldn't really think about and I wouldn't put information in without explaining it but of course like whenever you're writing you're always making decisions about what does and doesn't need to be explained but but the only time I could think of where somebody doesn't do that is actually um in the Kevin Kwan novels um which are like crazy rich Asians that series and then um and like for part of the books are these footnotes that explain what different dishes are, what different terms are, but also that just are these like sort of humorous digressions, which I think is an interesting way of approaching a topic because these are books with a lot of thing, things that are set in Malaysia, um, people from all different Asian countries who are obviously very rich as per crazy <laughs> rich Asians um, and often eating like very exciting food and it's presented as exciting food. I'm not, it's not just me like, from the standpoint of a piece of toast looking wistfully. Um, but yeah, so I, I, I know I'm, I'm rambling a bit here, but what I'm saying is that I think there um, are ways you can do the explanation and sort of be unapologetic. And that there are also ways where you can kind of, like there's a certain type of book that would be read often maybe like in school where it feels like a vitamin and here's the word it's in italics. Here's a footnote. This is what it means. And you feel like it's kind of a pedagogical text slash something to make you more open-minded and introduce you to the rest of the world. You know what I mean? Like in a sort of global literature's textbook. Yeah. So this is even a step beyond that. It's not a vitamin. It's like, it's like an emetic, you know, you're going (laughs) to eat it. (laughs) You consume this and you realize I'm not supposed to be here. I'm doing something forbidden. Like this is not for me. Um, but I think it's really interesting that that you mentioned Kevin Kwan because I haven't read his books. But as you were describing this, it struck me that like this is really an amazing example of this notion of you know inviting somebody into a world that is not just you know culturally other, but as you said, it's, you know, it's a class thing too. So you're invited to be kind of fascinated by it and to, and to see it as, you know, this, like this peak into, I mean, I keep, I keep wanting to say like a zoo or a, a carnival, like a freak show, you know, but you're understanding it and you're being invited to understand it. The thing about the, the vegetable, um, what I think that the emotion that, in practice in poetry that this is supposed to elicit is akin to what you get like reading white fragility you know or like Mm. reading white fragility on the subway in public you know you're demonstrating something about I would never (laughs) (laughs) I see I what I do is I take the dust jacket off of white fragility and I put it on a comic book and then I read in public so everyone thinks oh no not not on the 10 rules for life is that a Jordan Peterson thing I think isn't it what it is (laughs) 
Uh, I don't know. I was I was doing like a deeper, more dorky cut um, than than Jordan Peterson. But that that would be a good one, too. <laughs> no, I take a I take a copy of Penthouse magazine and I put, <laughs> put the dust jacket <laughs> for white fragility on it. They're not even the same size. So there's like a random boob poking up above the, you know, but. But what color is the boob? <laughs> uh, that is the eternal question. But no, the, but I think that the idea is, you know, if you if you enjoy the experience of reading this and not understanding it and knowing that you're not supposed to understand it because because fuck you, you're the wrong cultural background or whatever, that it is this sort of masochistic impulse. And it's the same impulse that leads people to buy a lot of the sort of woke self-help that it is so in vogue right now, where it's like you're reading this to be told either explicitly or obliquely that there's something wrong with you. Yeah, yeah, I see the connection. And I could see these being a side by side in a in any number of uh, local bookstores. I mean, I'm also just thinking about like, with poetry, though, there is, obviously, this isn't true of all poetry, but the idea of like writing that's sort of incomprehensible and or just not comprehensible in a straightforward way, that is, you know, not unheard of. Right. Um, and that's true in all genres. Like there's fiction that's, you know, very avant garde and hard to understand. There's like Judith Butler, or whatever, you know, there. So I guess like it could fit in the tradition of just incomp- intentionally incomprehensible writing. I guess. Yes. Yeah. Judith Butler is a good comparison because she's so in your face. If, if you suggest that she's incomprehensible in any way, her response is like, yes, yeah, screw you. It's supposed to be. You don't belong here. <laughs> well, it's the same idea then, I guess. Um, but yeah, I mean, I can kind of see the case for like, I, just as a very practical matter. I think if a word is being used constantly in a book, and it's not an English word, but it's clear from the context of the otherwise in English book, what's being talked about. I mean, I've seen this in books all the time. And like, you just pick up on it, and it's not really a big deal. And I think that doing that, like, could just could be kind of like a subtle political thing that makes a point. But I feel like it's different from this whole thing about the white readers and the BIPOC writers and all of this, because as uh, I don't remember who this was, somebody tweeted, um, like somebody with a pseudonym when I tweeted about this replied some or like quote tweeted something about like the two languages, um, white and BIPOC, which I thought was very <laughs> funny because what's happening, like as many people replied, like what if you're reading a book and hard to imagine, but you're either a native English speaker who isn't white or you're a native speaker of any number of languages other than Mandarin who isn't white, you know, and then what? like you're equally it's not like unless it's a kindle oh my goodness it's some sort of super sophisticated kindle that can detect melanin level when you're reading it oh my goodness and you either get a footnote or you don't i love the idea of the you know because some kindles do have a little camera on them there's like a, a scanner in there that will analyze the melanin content like a laser blasts out of it and runs over your face like in a futuristic movie like up and down it's like more, 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 more. and then it you know translates it for you or not depending um so if you you can go out and get a tan and you can hack it that way but yeah, otherwise yeah <laughs> or conversely if you have a lot of sunscreen on well but this does get us to maybe like a 
bigger topic, perhaps uh, one that the one that I just wrote that about. Kat wrote something so wonderful about um, for reason. Sensitivity readers are the new literary gatekeepers. I am so glad you wrote about this. I'm so glad it was written about and by you. Like that is fantastic. Um, Thank you. It was a pleasure to write about. And I really enjoyed. I really enjoyed your article. I flagged specifically on. I know when I tweeted it. There was a passage that jumped out at me. So while you look for that, I will just say that I do think that this is a good segue because there's something about the idea of writing as an exclusionary practice that ties into the rise of sensitivity reading as a practice. Because sensitivity reading, when it first came on the scene, um, and for those who are not in the know, sensitivity reading is when you either as an author or the publisher hires someone um, from an particular identity background, whether they're disabled or of an alternative sexuality or a certain racial background, to read your book with the identity of the characters in mind to let you know if you've written them authentically or not. This is something you do when you're writing, quote unquote, outside your lane, when you're trying to write characters who don't share your identity characteristics. So this first came about uh, as a practice and became more widespread starting in young adult fiction, where I used to also be writing books. And around like 2016, 2017, as young adult fiction got big on diversity, um, it also became a concern that, you know, too many white writers were trying to write diverse books. They were trying to write diverse characters. So sensitivity reading was established in part to basically obstruct writers from, quote, overrepresented backgrounds in young adult fiction from publishing too easily from imagining the interior lives of characters who were from underrepresented backgrounds. The idea being that this would make room for authors who matched the backgrounds of their marginalized characters to come in and claim that space on the shelf. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's weird, right? Like what does, what is, um, I mean, I think we've talked about this before on the podcast as well, just like what does it mean like diver what are diverse books is it the writer is it the character is it some does it have to be both and then you know because like i think there was um like you get the whole sort of like not to bring it always back to lena dunham but the whole like lena dunham <laughs> didn't cast any people of color didn't create any people of color characters um in her tv show from a thousand years ago or whatever and then it's like is the problem that or is it that there are not more um, diverse creators to begin with and then you get in these weird situations where what do you make of the diverse characters created by Lena Dunham or whatever. Right, right. Once she did that, that also was not good enough. You know, she was it was perceived to be I mean, not least because I think she she kind of thumbed her nose at her critics in creating this Donald Glover character, um, you know, I mean, and then with fiction, though, you don't even have the sort of like, well, at least it created some sort of casting jobs. Although what you do have, and this is fascinating, is about, and this is the part of your piece I wanted to um, just uh, highlight, although the whole thing is fantastic and everybody should read it. Um, but so Kat wrote, uh, to understand why publishing would go all in on a practice that not only interferes with an author's creative autonomy, but traffics in crude stereotyping to boot, you need to know one crucial fact about sensitivity readers. They're cheap. The average cost of a sensitivity read is a few hundred dollars per manuscript, and it's a freelance job. Uh, that This made it a godsend to publishers who wanted to merely look like they were giving people of color a seat at the table, but didn't want to go through all the trouble of buying those additional chairs. So basically, um, yeah, it's, it's a sort of like, a, it's less um, powerful than hiring a 
an actor. You know, it's like, it's the equivalent of almost having somebody be in a crowd shot. Yes. I'm thinking, I feel like I always end up talking about self-care by Lee Stein, who, you know, briefly helped me out with the podcast while you were gone. Well, Um, she's great and that novel's great, so. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, there's this whole thing about how, like, this uh, this startup being run by two white women, they always have to make sure that they're including two stock photos with people of color for every one that has all white people in it. And it's really like that. You know, publishers can claim to have, we've hired, like, dozens and dozens of people from this, you know, entire rainbow of, of sexual and racial and ethnic and, you know, whatever identities. And, what it really is is that you know they've they've spent like a couple thousand dollars to nominally get the input of these people on manuscripts being written by the white authors who are already their stable i mean that so that phenomenon has a pretty old history at this point where like i've seen like new york private school brochures with very white student bodies that make sure to make it look in the brochure like they're you know much more diverse than they are. <laughs> um, that's a thing that's not, um, it's certainly become a thing more widely, but yeah. Um, but this whole I- idea, um, I mean, what's so interesting that you get into also in your piece is just that the writers themselves can be of a marginalized background, but if it's not the same marginalized background as they're writing about, and God forbid a novel have more than one character, because <laughs> you can't be having that. It, it just becomes... Oh, there's just something sort of hard to figure out about how fiction would be even feasible ever, because once you have multiple characters, they can't all have the exact same qualities. No, and I mean, that's why you only have to scratch the surface of this to understand that it's completely unworkable as just a matter of craft. You can't write a book this way where every time you're trying to write about a character who has an experience you don't share or an identity that you don't share, you have to go out and get a targeted beta read to make sure that you've imagined that character, quote unquote, authentically, according to the opinion of the one person, the one random person who happens to share that identity characteristic, you know, who's going to tell you that you did it right or wrong. It's really nonsense. And it's demonstrably nonsense, even insofar as sensitivity reading is applied as a practice, because it only ever goes one way. You're only ever required to get sensitivity reads if you are from a more privileged or overrepresented identity and trying to write somebody who's from a less privileged category. So for instance, women are never told that they can't imagine men. People who are disabled are never told that they can't imagine able-bodied characters. Um, Nobody ever goes out and tells a fat author to lose weight in order to write a thin heroine in their novel. That would be the drama of the day on Twitter if that happened. It has happened in the opposite direction. This is really funny. Um, And I... I'm going to, okay, I don't remember the names of these people, so I'll have to dig this up and put it in the show notes. But I was alerted to this by a friend who often um, sends me stuff from this area of the discourse because he knows that it'll make me mad and sometimes I'll tweet about it. You know, he exists just to rile me up. So thanks a lot, Zach. But um, there was a kerfuffle within, I believe, the romance writing community where an author had written a character who was obese, you know, like very, very overweight. And this, she figured it was going to be okay because the author herself was fat. And then it turned out, no, she wasn't fat enough. No. 
No, so she she could not write a character who was like 15 to 20% more overweight than she herself was because this in and of itself was a niche area of fatness that she could not possibly understand. And uh, I mean, you can imagine how how bonkers this would get if you actually tried to apply it in any consistent way or, you know, in its in any kind of practical way. Like, I'm sorry, we're going to need you to gain 50 pounds and then come back and show us what you've got. It's just bizarre. But I mean, I think so it's clear why it doesn't work. But I feel like what's also needed is like, yeah, and I think you do this too, though, that like the affirmative case for what does what fiction is. And it is, you know, yes, it's edited, but it's one person who has, you know, a finite experience of the world, giving, creating a world and, you know, offering a, an artistic perspective. So yes, one person has, you know, blind spots, limitations, because they're one person, doesn't matter what their background is, there's nobody who's omniscient. And I think the pretense of omniscience, like in the sort of political experiential omniscience, is just ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense. And the whole point of fiction is that, you know, there's assuming it's, you know, there's a single author of a a particular book, that person has the knowledge of the world that they have, and they are channeling it into a creative product. And like, it just the idea that, that it could be even like fact checked in that way, it just it seems like that's no, it's not that type of thing. It's not a peer reviewed article, like it's not trying to get like the full knowledge of the world all into one document. It's that's what seems off about this to me, aside from anything political, just like it is supposed to be like, because it just seems to me like it sets fiction up to fail the minute you say that it's been kind of like vetted in that way. Yeah, I actually want to, I want to linger on this because one of the things that you frequently hear as a defense of sensitivity reading is, well, these are just subject matter experts. And I want to identify this as the most common argument that you hear in favor of sensitivity reads. And I want to just like tear it to shreds because it's not true. Um, And here's why. So subject matter experts are people who you consult when you're writing fiction that requires access to sort of a body of niche knowledge or a skill set that you don't personally have. Um, And it's about getting your facts correct. So when I write crime novels, um, you know, for instance, my most recent book, I consulted a detective, you know, who investigated murders. And I asked him a bunch of questions. And he was able to come back and say, here's how police procedure works so that I could get police procedure more or less accurate in my books. This is the other thing about subject matter experts is you don't have to incorporate every last thing that they tell you. You know, it's not a a giant affront or an offense if my police source says, hey, you know, when we investigate crimes, we send seven people to the scene. And I say, well, you know, that's fine, but I don't feel like creating seven characters. So this police officer in my book is just going to have a partner who helps them investigate. And that's just how we're doing it. It's fine. It's not like I'm writing a handbook for police investigations. You're not? I see. I don't, don't use my books that way. <laughs> yes, definitely do not try to investigate any murders. But um, a sensitivity read would be more like if the police officer reads my manuscript and comes back and says, as a police officer, I find this police officer character offensive. A police officer would never feel this or think that or do this. And as the author and as the creator of this world, the only response to that is, sorry, 
But this police officer does because I made him. And I know the interior life of this character better than a random reader does, even if that person nominally shares certain characteristics with this person. Well, exactly. Oh, this just, this is so frustrating because like, I've seen, you know, portrayals of people of my own background that don't ring true to me, but they might ring true to somebody else, you know, like that's... um, or they don't have to be true at all. It could all just be fiction. You know, like that's that's another thing. But I'm also thinking about just like, what does it mean for fiction to be offensive? Because it's like this whole thing of, is it a character saying something offensive? Is it that the implication is the author's perspective? Is is that of the character? Like that, I think, is just, it, it leads to very um, unsophisticated reads. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, the idea behind it is, well, you're, you know, this isn't authentic, because it doesn't speak to the authentic experience of what it's like to be a person of this background. But the thing about that is that it implies that there's only one way to be a human being who looks a certain way or who practices a certain religion. And I mean, we all know just intuitively that that's not true. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I could see like, if it really is just some sort of cultural knowledge thing, having somebody, you know, tell you like, oh, no, actually, burritos are not the national dish of Spain, you know, but that's a subject matter thing. That's factual. Right. That's factual. And the sensitivity. Yeah. I mean, it's in the name. It's about being sensitive. I think that it's it's the difference between a person speaking to the accuracy of your facts versus a person trying to speak to the authenticity of what your character is feeling. You know, one of these things is fully knowable and the other is really none of anybody's business except the writers. I I don't see how this caught on. I don't see how, um, I mean, by with readers, like, oh, it's just. Mm, Readers hate this. This is the funny thing is, um, and you'll see it. You'll see it in books, you know, especially ones that have been written within the past uh, couple of years there will be these little fourth wall breaking moments where somebody kind of steps back and is like, well, as a cis white able-bodied woman, I shouldn't really, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, I mean, it's like the vitamin. You have to get past it and you can feel either this kind of petrified author trying to hedge their bets against being attacked on Twitter, or you can feel the hand of some, you know, editor or maybe sensitivity reader who was like, you can't have this in here unless it's disclaimed in this way. And it it makes the books bad. Do you think what they need maybe is footnotes? Like the, as a cis, white, middle-class, whatever, just needs to be footnoted every time a character of a different background appears. Here's a great idea. How about we do how about we do footnotes in invisible ink? Would that satisfy? <laughs> there we go. I think you've solved it. You've solved it. There we go. Hey, it's like, you know, the work went in and it's all about doing the work, right? Capital D, capital W. I think that's good enough. Um, do we have time to do another mini topic? Yeah, yeah, to talk about something else that was uh, perhaps even more infuriating than the sensitivity reading thing. On the subject of words and what words you are and aren't allowed to use, do we have to start including footnotes every time we use the word women? Well, I will say that um, I have seen on Facebook in sort of mother groups, the sort of asterisks used to make it clear that you're talking about mothers, but also people who do not identify as mothers, but are in a group for mothers. But so they identify enough that they would be in such a group, but not enough that they would be comfortable with such a term. So 
it kind of does exist. But so first, I just want to like jump out and ask what's going on with Bette Midler on Twitter. The sort of national legend Bette Midler seems to be very active on Twitter these days. Yeah, what's she up to? I have literally seen two tweets by Bette Midler, and one of them was something about breastfeeding is free in response to the formula (laughs) crisis, which seemed kind of random coming from her. Um, I don't know why she decided to opine on this, but she did. And then more recently, she tweeted, um, in all caps, women of the world, we are being stripped of our rights over our bodies, uh, our lives, and even of our name. They don't call us women anymore. They call us birthing people or menstruators and even people with vaginas. Don't let them erase you. Every human on earth owes you. There are layers and levels and all of this. But basically, this was about um, Roe v. Wade being no more. And about, um, I guess, this was the Pamela Paul New York Times uh, footnote. Pamela Paul, writer, columnist. Anyway. Um, and... She had written very uh, controversial op-ed in the Times called the far right and the far left agree on one thing, uh, women don't count. And the women don't count part reminded me, I guess, of David Badil, uh, the Jews don't count, which I've read and is uh, interesting. Um, But yeah, it seemed like a kind of oblique reference to that. So anyway, so Bette Midler was team, you should be able to say women. And then Michael Hobbs jumped in to get angry at Bette Midler. And then I think the whole site just imploded and disappeared. and Everybody was for the better. Uh, Michael Hobbs. Do we have to explain who he is? I'm not entirely sure who he is. I'm, he's a podcaster. He's the host of the smuggest podcast in the world, or he or formerly, formerly the host of the smuggest podcast in the world called You're Wrong About, where uh, he and a fellow podcast host would debunk various moral panics. There is split opinion on whether or not he is good at debunking. Maybe he's bunking. He's he's a both bunker and debunker. He bunks only to debunk. Whatever. I'm just going to say, like, full disclosure, Hobbes has gone after me on Twitter many, many times and going around a block that he's implemented to do it. So he'll, like, come to my account from some nefarious other way, screenshot my tweets, and then post them on his own account to make fun of me. He's a very unpleasant person. Well, that comes through in this thread. I feel like bad faith as an expression gets thrown around a lot. And it's rare that that's like the first expression that comes to mind when I'm reading something. But this thread, and I should I should say, I come at this feeling like you can say pregnant people, you can say pregnant women, you can say them interchangeably. I, I actually do not care. So that's why I feel like all the more struck by how bad faith his response was. So he responded to Bette Midler. Part of it was, um, if it's that fucking important to you to say pregnant women instead of pregnant people, say it, fine. But don't compare the mild pushback you get to some sort of genocide. Get a grip. That's not even the best part of his tweet. That's no, no, that was the part that struck me. But then there was this whole thing. He writes, uh, it's double weird because the basic premise updating language will harm society makes no sense on its face. Language changes all the time, especially when it comes to marginalized groups. Plus, if we're honest, the outdated forms are still in circulation. If you want to say stewardess or Indian or the R word. (laughs) Okay, sorry, I'm going to want to digress, but I'm going to keep reading his tweet. You can. People will think you're an asshole, and if you're a celebrity, you'll get emails correcting you, but you're not 
going to go to jail. Okay. You heard it here first. Saying pregnant women, it won't get you. It, it will it, It's the R word. It's that's what it is. It should be the the P W. The P W word. Yeah. Oh, we should probably. We should probably just mention that the R word in this case is retarded when used as a slur rather than uh you know to describe something that's been delayed in some way. Right. So, so pregnant women, as I what I took this thread to mean, is that. Pregnant women is a slur, but if you say a slur, you only get in trouble if you're a celebrity and it's not real trouble. So what's the problem? What's interesting about this, as many have pointed out, myself included, but I think this was a pretty widely understood thing, is that the analogy falls apart in a few key ways. One being that women are the people complaining about the phrase pregnant people and so forth, or menstruators or birthing people or whatever. The people complaining here are women. So if woman has become offensive, it has not become offensive by and large to women. Am I understanding this correctly? So it's, if it's like call the group what they want to be called, the people in question want to be called the word women. So, okay, there is a problem. Then there's this idea of slurs or outdated words, and also the conflation of something that's outdated and that makes you an asshole, makes people think you're an asshole. Like if somebody says stewardess, I don't think I think they were like a bad person. I would probably just think they're old. And Indian also, I think, is not even considered bad enough. Anyway, whatever. I mean, most, um, you know, what we call Native Americans refer to themselves as Indians. It's a very normal thing. They don't have a problem with it. It's in some cases their preferred term. But I mean, but this reflects such a particular kind of approach to to the world, to relating to other people, this idea that the words you use signal your character in this fundamental way, which it's only something you can believe if you are obsessed with always being up on like the most latest elite jargon coming out of, I mean, usually out of academia. Um, And if, you know, this is, you consider this very important to your identity and your status within your social bubble, and then you start just expanding it out to apply to everyone, including the vast majority of people who don't think about language that way. Yeah. I mean, what, what's really uh, the reason this bothers me so much, apart from that, it's just so idiotic. This thread, it's just like, ah, it's just so ridiculous is and also like there is i think there's like better pushback if you want to push back against the bet midler pamela paul line of thought i think there are better ways of doing it like i don't think this is really particularly like i think the better way of doing it would just be to say okay some people feel one way on this topic others feel another way the bigger issue is reproductive rights abortion rights let's all get together the people who say pregnant women and the people who say pregnant people and all fight for this together and not make a big fuss about language and not pretend that this actually is all a discussion, like not allow sort of like often very like much British feminist infighting to take over what is a pretty on the ground American political reality, you know, and legislative reality, like maybe that would be more useful than this whole thing about nobody's gonna like nobody's gonna guillotine you if you say pregnant women it's like right of course they aren't and they shouldn't and this is stupid (laughs) like 
but they should almost like, but they should, <laughs> and then you should feel grateful that they don't. Yeah, but it's like, but you'll, but you'll be scolded. And I agree that you know the ideal thing would be to have everyone come together, mobilize. Everyone can use the words that they prefer. I think that were this to happen, the people who insist on saying pregnant people or menstruators or what have you would shortly find themselves very, very outnumbered. And this is probably why this has become such a flashpoint, because that group of people doesn't want to let it go. They want everybody else to change the way they speak. It's just, I mean, this, so there's that whole aspect. There's the whole, it's bad faith, it's idiotic, but also like, I guess, um, Another thing that struck me just like, and I've written about this now a couple of times is just like following these debates online that like, I think it is both sort of more fun and also in a weird way, less stressful to argue about language and terminology. Cause like, it's, it's just sort of, it feels very out of one's control, reproductive rights being kaput or whatever, you know, like that just feels huge. And, um, unreachable whereas yelling at people who mostly agree with you on twitter seems more reachable but what it i've been noticing though is really just um this phenomenon of where like this sort of knee-jerk discussion of like cishet privilege gets used in this topic which is like you literally are the opposite of privileged for abortion access if you are a person with a uterus who sleeps with men like ah and that you just see it so much this whole sort of like like this is actually mainly about I, I mean we've talked about this already but this just drives me so nuts like ah like just exactly my thoughts exactly I would leave that in cash because that I think that better expresses my feelings on this topic than anything I could say yeah I will uh, I will allow the dog to to bark in place of any anything else um, I will say, you know, since we're talking about this, I do agree that there's something to Paul's op-ed and to this general idea that being able to use the word women does matter. I wrote about this for The Spectator back in, oh gosh, I don't remember. It might have been last year. There was this um, this big issue of The Lancet that had the word bodies with vaginas on the cover caused a big kerfuffle. And, you know, the thing that that strikes me about this as an issue is we've increasingly come to the point where woman is a category that you identify into because you feel like one, you believe you are one. And so that makes you a woman. And that's how we define this category, which is okay, fine. Um, but then if you want to mobilize and, and, and create a movement on behalf of like women, women, you know, natal women, um, then you don't have that word available to you. And what you end up doing, and you can see it happening now in terms of the abortion debate, you're left talking about body parts and about processes rather than about people. And I do think that matters to a certain extent. I also think there's the fact that we're fixating on this on behalf of being quote unquote inclusive. Um, I mean, let's just think for a moment about who's actually included versus excluded by this, not just because trans men are a, frankly, very small percentage of the population, you know, these are like the men who become pregnant, um, but they're quite unlikely to ever be pregnant. I wrote about this in my newsletter. Yes, yes, yes. This is very few people. And of those people, you have to be talking about trans men who have not done anything hormonally or surgically that would prevent them from getting pregnant yes, and exactly. who are having sex with um 
with men or or trans women or or intact trans women yes it's just too few people and it's just this whole thing of like including uh, like what drives me really nuts about this topic is it always gets kind of treated as if like it's akin to like the Merry Christmas versus Happy Holidays. Like, does it really cost you anything to say Happy Holidays? Because, you know, marginalized groups aren't celebrating Christmas. Fine. Women are also a marginalized group, especially at a moment when abortion is, you know, off the table, as it were. You know, like women, the, the group in question is a marginalized group. So this is a a competition of um language where nobody's the have you know what I mean like that's what just I do think that like if you happen to be a trans man looking for an abortion of course you're going to have specific issues that come up that a woman seeking an abortion very likely would not however is it the luxurious privilege of that people call you by the right pronouns when you're being turned down for the abortion you need like it just seems a little ridiculous yeah, this is what makes me a little nuts is that we're basically being hamstrung and word policed for the sake of including, I don't know, like like a, a couple dozen people, um, you know, who who if you asked them would not really care about this. They would tell you this is not their primary concern when it comes to this particular issue, um, you know, and 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 in doing so, we're eliminating a way of talking about this that could be kind of unifying for an awful lot of people. And I think that the, that what this comes back to also is a point that Paul also makes, that there's this expectation that even when we are trying to advocate for something as basic as bodily autonomy across the board, you know, even when we're talking about something like abortion and, and forced birth and reproductive rights, uh, there's this expectation that women are going to defer and like, you know, like we're going to always be playing the hostess in our own movement. And we have to make sure that everybody has a comfortable seat and a beverage and has been introduced around to everybody else. And like, and then maybe we get to talk about the actual issue at play. And I think that that's a problem and it should probably be talked about. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I'm I'm torn on this because on the one hand, yes, all of that. But at the same time, it just seems like as a practical matter, like I've seen having, you know, had two babies in the rather um, progressive downtown Toronto area that you can have kind of on a day-to-day level signs about allyship, pregnant people, you know, all of this, and also just like a day-to-day, very like realistic understanding of you're looking at a bunch of women with mostly husbands or male partners at least um and not there isn't this kind of like eggshell day-to-day life that you might imagine would kind of accompany this like at least theoretical like like there were these things where you could put a sticker at the OBGYN's office with your pronouns and I don't think anybody actually took these stickers like they were there like they're trying but like you just see all these you know sort of conventionally feminine looking women with giant baby bumps. Like, I don't know. I I just think like there is a way in which I think, and I'm part of the problem. I find this interesting to talk about, but like, I think it's just, I, I just wish there were some way to just like harness the fact that in day to day life, people all are just like, there isn't like, I, I, 
I guess what's frustrating for me is whenever I bring this up on Twitter, I feel like people start litigating the whole thing. And I'm like, no, no, we're not. We're, I'm saying let's not litigate the whole thing. And it's like saying, but see, this is why it's bad to say pregnant people. And it's like, yes, I do see that. But see, I don't think it's necessarily bad to say pregnant people, like say it if you want, but it's the fact that the people who are saying pregnant people won't rest at just being able to say it themselves. They do insist and and derail the conversations in which someone says the word. Well, that's like the Michael Hobbs thing. Yeah, exactly. It's like, you know, Michael Hobbs just, you know, he could have written about anything, you know, with respect to, to Bette Midler's tweet. He chose to nitpick her use of the word women and, you know, and her insistence upon using it. So I don't know, like, I mean, you would basically have to, to at the very least persuade the people who are more interested in scolding about language to stop doing that. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I think it's, it's hopeless and everybody's just going to be in some sort of, at least you all have internet, you know, that's what I'll say. <laughs> like, I was feeling a little smug up here in Canada, a little, uh, you know, I don't have to worry about all the horrible, you know, developments in the United States. And then our internet went down nationwide. You live in a third world country. (laughs) I know. It's like, we don't, we don't have quite so many uh, mass shootings and we have, you know, abortion rights, but we don't have internet. And honestly, of of all of these things, like, which is the most important? I, I fell behind on the discourse. And I, I even like at one point, because I had kind of like very weak phone internet throughout this. And I made a tweet that I was like really proud of about the whole situation with the internet. But like nobody could see it because like nobody was online. Oh, no. It was very upsetting. Truly, this is the most egregious form of oppression we have ever discussed on this podcast. I'm so sorry this happened to you. <laughs> I think so. I think so. If anybody wants to fictionalize it, they need to be Canadian. Right. And uh, I think that that's where we can end it <laughs> so too <laughs> uh this is oh right um i think we have to also oh yeah if you enjoyed our conversation and would like to hear more like it we have a sub stack where you can become a premium subscriber and for the low low cost of five dollars a month or fifty dollars a year receive access to our entire back catalog of archived episodes as well as exclusive content just for subscribers. We try to release two exclusive episodes per month. You also will get early access to our public episodes, usually a couple days in advance. So if you're having fun here, please join us on Substack. It's femchaospod.substack.com. Yes, please join us. And uh, and this has been Feminine Chaos. That it has. Thank you. Bye. Bye.